Uh, we've been in this little series that we started last week, um, going 70s for the holidays. And I love the 70s. I mentioned last week that I was saved in the 70s, and the 70s gave us wonderful things like Star Wars and Sesame Street and Evil Knievel breaking every bone in his body, jumping over the top of things. And they also gave us interesting phrases, the 70s. This week I want to look at one phrase or one statement, one term that was coined, and that is the man. In the 70s, there was this thing called the man, and it wasn't talking about any one man in particular. When I say the man, we don't mean this man up on the screen. I think we've got a picture. Here it comes. Yep. Anybody recognize that guy? Anybody? What's that? No, it's not an Olympian. Um, there's, it's a family here in our church. Let's go to the next one. Let's see if anybody recognizes this guy. Anybody recognize him? Okay, who is that? Dan Longman. Okay, Dan, for those of you who know, Dan is one of our deacons, and that's, and that's his wife, Carol. Go back to the next one. I'm going to give you another chance. Now that you know he's in our congregation. Bob Lemons. Very good. That's Bob and Peggy Lemons. Now, that's not the man that I'm talking about either. That's the wolf man. Okay, that's not, that's not the man. And you can notice those guns, too. He, he was a workout machine. Thanks for the 70s pictures. Keep them coming. Going to use them in the future. And I know some of you don't want to send them in, so send, but you want to send them in for your spouse, okay, if that applies, or your parents. Go ahead and do that. We'd love Donnie, do you have any from the 70s? Were you around there? Okay, well, I'd really love, if you could send us some of those, we'd really appreciate that. But we're not talking about any one man in particular. When we talk about the man in the 70s, what we were talking about is just authority in general. The man was the government or the police department or, you know, some sort of corporate America. The man was this faceless authority who made the rules but didn't necessarily live by the rules, who was keeping the little person down. That was the man. And so if something was going wrong in the world, if it was spinning in the wrong direction, it was the fault of the man. Now, this, this is really interesting to me. Whenever you see this in writing, the man, man is always capitalized. The capital M, man, who is the faceless authority, who is running the world on top of everything, who didn't play by his own rules, and who kept little people down. Now, let me just ask you a question, okay? Broaden your imagination here for just a second. In the 70s, when people would say, the man, this faceless authority, who was overall protected by distance from humankind, shrouded in mystery, cloaked in authority, who made the rules but didn't necessarily play by the rules, who was the author of oppression. Who do you think a lot of people thought the man was in the 70s? The man upstairs. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big jump from the man to the man at the top or, or God. So here's what you see happening in the 70s. In the 70s, there were a lot of books that came out about, you know, how, how can you believe in a God who causes suffering and all the rest. And this is kind of interesting. In 1972, and you'll find this article, it's out there on the Internet. It's rather popular. It was written uh, and published in the New York Times by a man named Richard Rubenstein. And he wrote this article considering faith after Holocaust. And, and he writes about how if God is the one who's the most active in history... If all of history is essentially an expression of the purposeful actions of God, especially toward his chosen people, then don't you think God is the one who's ultimately responsible for the Holocaust, for things like Auschwitz, 
And he goes on in this article, it became rather famous, he goes on this article to talk about the one who's ultimately responsible and then just the technocrats, just the people in the middle, just the mechanization of everything. But ultimately, the buck stops somewhere and it stops with God, who's the man on top of it all. This kind of flows along, too, with another play that was very popular after World War II. It was actually a one-act play written by an East German pastor. The play was The Sign of Jonah. And in The Sign of Jonah, it's this one-act play, very popular. It ran for a thousand-plus showings in West Berlin. In this play, people are brought forward to testify who were involved in the atrocities of Auschwitz. They're brought forward and they're questioned. And they said, why did you do it? And the people always inevitably say the same thing. They say, we were just following orders. Don't look at me. Go to the level up. So they would go to the level up. And they would ask people the same question. Why did you do it? And they say, well, I was just following orders. You need to talk to the people above me. Go to the level up. So they would go to the level up. And eventually they would say the same thing. Hey, don't look at us. We were just following orders. You've got to go to the level up. And as they keep passing the buck up and up and up and up, eventually it becomes very plain, even though these people are the perpetrators, even though they were guilty, even though there was blood on their hands, so to speak, ultimately everybody is looking at God and they're saying, we've got to blame him because the buck stops with him because he's the man. He's the one at the top. He's ultimately responsible. And the point of Richard Rubenstein in this, in this whole piece is... There's one who's ultimately responsible. Everybody else is a technocrat, just people stuck in the middle. And how in the world could you believe in a God who would allow things like that to happen? And if you do believe in a God like that, why would you ever do anything other than resist? If in the 70s people wanted to resist the man, there was also a movement along those lines. We need to resist God who's at the top, who's running things, because look at how this world is spinning in the wrong direction. Now, here's the question. Very 70s question. Do you need to resist this God? And can this God actually pass your judgment? And just so you know, the answer is no, you don't need to resist this God. And yes, this God can pass your judgment and my judgment if you want to pass judgment on this God, this one who's at the top of it all. And to help you to understand this, what we're going to do today is we are going to look at this one man in particular who stands at the center of the Christmas story. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus because Jesus is just a baby, okay? And the majority of the Christmas story revolves around the time before Jesus was even born. When I'm talking about the man who stands at the center of the Christmas story, I'm talking about Joseph, who is this man, this righteous man who is taking direct orders from the one who's at the top. And as we look at that relationship and as we unfold what goes on in that relationship, I think you're going to become convinced that God not only should not be resisted, but he actually should be fully trusted because he is entirely unlike the man that was presented in the 70s. All right, with that, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 11 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, back in verse 19, it says that Joseph was a righteous man. And we know that Joseph, this righteous man, is getting direction straight from God. We also know that in a general sense, a righteous person is someone who is living with God's approval. So here we have God giving direction to this righteous man who is living with the approval of God. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, tell me something I don't know. Well, what you may not know is this whole idea of the righteous man has a rich history. In Joseph's day, the righteous man was known in the Hebrew as uh, Tzaddik. The tzaddik was the righteous man. He was the man who had the reputation that everybody wanted, the reputation of somebody who was completely, utterly obedient to the Torah, to the books of Moses, to the law of God. And in case any of you are wondering about this information I'm giving you concerning the tzaddik, this comes largely from Scott McKnight, who is a, who is a professor of New Testament at the Seminary, the Northern Baptist Theological Seminary in Illinois. Okay, if you just want to look some of this up, you can also just Google it. It's in Wikipedia. Somebody, oh, Tzaddik. Somebody asked me in the first service, how do you spell this, by the way, because I don't ever put it up on the screen. It's T-S, like the Tsars of Russia, T-S-A-D-I-K, Tzaddik. Very common. If you were a Jewish man, you wanted to be known in your community as a Tzaddik. If you're an athlete, you want to be an all-star. If you're a business person, you want to be the CEO. If you're a Jewish man, you want to be a tzaddik because a tzaddik was somebody who was known to be reputable. They were somebody that everybody knew they obeyed the kosher laws. They didn't eat certain foods. They would eat other certain foods. And they weren't the kind of person who would hang out with the people your mama didn't want you to be with. They were the kind of person that you would never invite over for ham sandwiches with prostitutes and tax collectors. They were the kind of person that would not open their carpentry shop on the Sabbath so as to make a few extra drachma. This is the person everybody wanted to be with. His reputation, his identity is all wrapped up in obedience to the Torah. That's who he was. He was a tzaddik. But in our story, Joseph is a tzaddik with a problem. Because here he has this woman that he's promised to marry and she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. And, and he knows, well, he doesn't know who the, who the father of the baby is, but he knows that he's not the father of the baby. And so there's a problem here. There's a, there's a conflict that arises in his mind. And there's also a problem because he lives in a small town. And as a general rule, in a small town, everybody knows everybody's business. Word gets around in a small town. So he's a righteous man who has this pregnant fiance, and it's not his fault. It's not his responsibility. The child is not his, and everybody knows everybody's business. This creates quite the, the issue for 
for Joseph. But Joseph, the Bible tells us, is considering a whole lot of things, and he's going through some particular struggles, but we need to enter into his struggles not knowing how the story ends, because here's the problem. A lot of times we'll read Bible stories and we know how it all ends, and so we get to the end and everything gets wrapped up nice and cleanly, and we think there's no problem here, and we'll look back at Joseph and we'll say, you know, that Joseph, he wasn't quite the same caliber of person as Mary, and why was he so spiritually slow? He should have figured this out sooner. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to pretend that you don't know how it all turns out. I want to ask you to enter the story right where the story is. Because I'm convinced of this. If you see where it is that God is taking Joseph in his understanding of what a righteous man is, you will see that God, to Joseph, is redefining righteousness and that God also himself is living up to the standard of righteousness that he is presenting to Joseph. God is rocking his world so that he can learn what a true tzaddik is. Not just a righteous person from the perspective of his own culture, but what a righteous person is from the perspective of God. And here's what I'm convinced of. When you see where it is that God takes Joseph and when you see that God lives up to his own definition of righteousness you will recognize God is not to be resisted and that God can pass any judgment that we pass on him because he has fulfilled completely his own high understanding of righteousness. So let's just kind of track along with Joseph here. Back to the story. Joseph is a tzaddik and his entire identity and his entire reputation is wrapped up in one thing, his obedience to the Torah. What the Torah says... He does. What the first five books of the Old Testament says, he does. That's who he is. And the Torah, the Old Testament Mosaic law, was really clear about what you did with a woman in Mary's particular condition. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, and there are all these rules around what to do with the adulterous woman. One of the things that becomes plain is if a woman was betrothed, if a woman was to get married, but then prior to the marriage... She actually is found to be an adulteress. She was to be taken to the door of her father's house and there by the men of the village to be stoned to death so as to purge or expel the sin from among them. That's the kind of language that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And Joseph may have also suspected that there might be some guy who seduced her, and if the man seduced her, then he should be stoned along with her. It's very clear what is to be done with someone in Mary's condition. There's also this really interesting option that's over in Numbers chapter 5. In Numbers chapter 5, if the woman's accused of adultery, but then she insists, hey, I'm not guilty, I didn't do anything, they can take her to the priest. And the priest can give her this concoction called the water of bitterness. And then, as it says in Numbers 5:27, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away and she will become a curse among her people. Which is all really, really weird. I don't understand. But the instruction is clear. Joseph knew what the law required with regards to a woman who was found out, who was guilty of adultery. Joseph also knew that all of his fellow tzaddikim would have told him the sin has to be exposed and the sin has to be punished. And yet Joseph, as the tzaddik that he was, still hesitates. He shouldn't have hesitated. 
In the old system of righteousness, the adulteress had to be exposed. The sin had to be brought out. The sin had to be punished. The standards had to be maintained. The standards were really, really clear. And yet something inside of Joseph said, I can't do this. I don't, in my heart, I don't want to expose this young woman to disgrace. In spite of the fact that he was a Sadiq, he doesn't want to do what the Torah is, is telling him to do. In spite of the fact that he is a righteous man, he does not want to expose her to disgrace and divorce her. Doesn't want to do this. Okay. Now, some of you are saying, wait, wait, wait a second, Ernest. Let's get back to the text because we just read a few minutes ago in chapter 19 or, or chapter 1, verse 19. We just read that it says because Joseph was a righteous man, he did not and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. It seems like there's no tension between him being righteous and him not wanting to expose her to public disgrace. Well, there's no tension for us. You know why there's no tension for us? Because Jesus has redefined for us righteousness. We know that would be unrighteous to want to expose her to public disgrace. But in Joseph's day... The righteous thing would have been to expose her. The, the reason it seems like there's no apparent contradiction or tension is because this verse, unfortunately, hasn't been translated optimally. Let, let me explain what I mean. So wait, Ernest, you're just telling me the NIV got it wrong. Well, OK, not exactly, but sort of. Yeah, I guess I am. So let me explain some grammar to you. I don't like to give you a grammar lesson, but I have to give you a grammar lesson in the Greek this could be translated it is straightforwardly, being a righteous man. It's a participle. It's called a conditional participle. And it could be translated in two different ways. The question is, is it a causal conditional participle or is it a concessive conditional participle? How you interpret it or how you translate it is not dependent upon the grammar. It's entirely dependent upon the context. Legitimately, it can be translated according to the grammar because Joseph was a righteous, righteous man or since Joseph was a righteous man, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. But it can also be translated, although Joseph was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, or you know, in spite of the fact that he was a righteous man, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. How you translate this depends entirely on the historic context and the context of the passage in which it occurs. And we know that with regards to being a tzaddik, what was required, and we know, secondly, what was required of the Torah. The best way to translate this really is, although or since, or, or all, although or in spite of that, Joseph was a righteous man, he still didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. There is a tension in Joseph's mind that is created by God in this moment. Because again, in the old form of righteousness, sin had to be exposed. Sin had to be punished. In the old form of righteousness, a righteous person would distance themselves from the sinners. And the sinners would be removed and exposed and dealt with publicly within their community. But something inside of Joseph says, I just can't do this. And he hesitates. There's a tension here. 
When the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, he already knew that she was pregnant. You know how? Mary had already told him. He knew. And when you're pregnant, I have heard, you just get more and more pregnant until the event happens. He knew. And you can imagine the the conversation. It's not that hard to imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind. Imagine Mary coming to Joseph and saying, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm pregnant and the baby's not yours. The good news is, well, an angel of the Lord came to me and said, Blessed art thou among women. The good news is this is a miracle baby. The good news is while this has never happened before, there's a first time for everything. Surprise, surprise. Yay. And you know that she's protesting her innocence. And you know that Joseph has to be thinking, I don't know that I can deal with this because I'm going to have to talk to my dad. And my dad's the one who arranged this marriage. And he's really struggling inside. And it seems like she's really, really sincere. But she's so young. And some people say, well, a 13, maybe 14-year-old virgin girl. And she seems sincere. But, you know, kind of. And, I, you know, I don't want to crush her or anything. But I'm just not buying it. And so because he doesn't want to disgrace her, he wants to deal with her in a gentle way by divorcing her quietly. And he would have to divorce her because if you're betrothed, that's a legal arrangement, even though the marriage hadn't been consummated or completed. And the only way to end that legal arrangement of betrothal was divorce. So he has a mind to divorce her. So he's struggling for a season. And then the angel of the Lord comes. Look what happens next. Verse 20, God sends this message to Joseph. After he had had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, here's my question. Why didn't God send an angel any sooner than this? Uh, You know, God, hey, Joseph's been struggling here for a few weeks or a couple of months. You could have sent an angel earlier, saved him some mental anguish over this whole decision. Why didn't you do it? And here's the answer. Because God is not necessarily so concerned about Joseph's mental anguish or lack thereof. Oh, and surprise, surprise, he's not necessarily that concerned about your mental anguish or lack thereof. Because sometimes, here's what God has to do. Sometimes God has to turn your world upside down and my world upside down before he can totally turn it right side up. Have you ever noticed something like this? Before you're willing to put your feet on solid ground, you have to recognize that where you're currently standing is really shaky. That it's sinking sand. Have you ever noticed that maybe even before God softens your heart, he kind of has to break it up a little bit? Have you ever noticed that before your life and your mentality and your mindset is due north, that your internal moral or spiritual or otherwise compass is kind of spinning around out of control? God, by his spirit, oftentimes allows us to enter into a season of disequilibrium. He does this with Joseph. He does this with you. He's done it with me. And the reason I'm bringing this up is so I can say to you, whoever you are, and I don't know who you are, but if you are in this season of disequilibrium or uncertainty or disorientation, do not take that as a sign that God has abandoned you. God is not the author of confusion, But if there is confusion in your life, at least on occasion, it just may be because God has a plan to take you where you're not. But before you will go to where it is that he wants to take you, before he can teach you what it is he wants to teach you, he's going to help you unlearn what you think you have learned so he can take you to where you need to be. Joseph has graciously been given this gift of a season of disorientation 
And now God takes him where he wants him to be. God reveals to this man who has his whole identity wrapped up in being a righteous person. And he helps this righteous person who thinks he knows all about righteousness to re-understand righteousness. To understand righteousness in a way that he hadn't understood before. And so some of you think, okay, Ernest, get to the point. What is Joseph's new understanding of righteousness? Well, I'd love to tell you, but I'm going to have to tell you how it is that God takes him there so that you will understand Joseph's new understanding of righteousness. So let's get back to the passage, get back to the text. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, why would Joseph be afraid to take Mary home as his wife? It's not just because he's afraid of disappointing God or disobeying the Torah. That's probably part of it. But part of it is he knows if he takes Mary home as his wife, he's going to be losing his reputation. He's already gone through this struggle with believing Mary or not believing Mary. And now he knows I'm going to have to tell everybody in town the story that was just told to me. Nobody is going to believe my account of things. If I tie my life to Mary and if I tie my life to her child, then I will have lost what it took me years to acquire my reputation. I'll never be able to look at anyone in the community in the same way without them looking back at me, not with respect and admiration, but with disdain and judgment. Joseph knew what the cost was going to be, and it terrified him. Because when you give up your reputation, you give up everything. There's this passage over in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Commonly in modern translations, it goes like this about how Jesus made himself nothing. In the King James Version, it says Jesus made himself of no reputation. And you go, well, what is it? Is it of no reputation or nothing? Same thing. person loses their reputation, they become nothing. And this is especially back in the day when your word meant something. You break your word, it's like you've done damage to your own soul. You've fractured who you are. For Joseph to lose his reputation, and not just with the rest of the world, but his friends, his community, his extended family, his cousins. He knew if I lose that, I'm losing everything. When I look into the eyes of other people, they're going to be looking back at me as no longer a friend, as someone worthy of exposing. But they just can't quite do it because I've got my story and I'm sticking to it. And there's going to be this constant tension that's always unresolved because they can never pin on me what they want to pin on me. And so every day it's going to be judgment on top of judgment on top of judgment because I'll never be fully sentenced. But they'll want it. My friends are not going to give me business. I'm not going to be invited over to anybody's home. I'm not going to be invited to the parties. I will be ostracized to live in quiet with Mary and this child. And that's it. Now, the Bible tells us that after the word of the Lord came to him, after he was commanded to do this, he did what the word commanded him. He did what was commanded of him by God. 
We see this in two ways. In verse 24, it says that he took Mary home as his wife, which is a very public demonstration, a very legal way of saying, I'm crossing over, she's my wife, it's very public. And then in verse 25, we see a second thing, and that is he names the child. This is what a father would do for a son. It's a very public display of ownership that this son I'm treating as and owning as my own. And Joseph knew that when he obeyed what it is that the Lord had told him, he would be forever tying his destiny to the lives of two people who would be forever stained in terms of their reputation. Now, when you see all of this, don't you just kind of stand in awe of Joseph for having been willing to do this, to go to the place prior to his own death, where he died completely to his own self and suffered his reputation. And his whole identity was tied up in that reputation. Now, some of you are saying, well, Ernest, did he really buy the farm like that? I mean, did he, did he really go all in? Did he really risk everything when he did as the word of the Lord had commanded? Yeah. And we see evidence of this over in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Kind of an interesting verse. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this is years after Joseph has passed away and, and Jesus is now an adult and he's in public ministry. And people say of Jesus, isn't this the son of Mary? Now, that doesn't sound very, that sounds benign. That sounds kind of nice. Well, that's Mary's kid. That is not benign. In Jesus' day... The boys were known as the sons of their father. Even after the father passed away, they would be called still Ernest, son of Jimmy, or, you know, Travis, son of Brad, or Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus bar Joseph. You didn't call someone the son of the mother. It'd be very much like the derogatory way where we say he's a son of a, and then there's another word for the mother. It's totally disrespectful toward Jesus. It's disrespectful for Mary. And it's an indication that even after Jesus' dad passed away, even after Joseph was gone, Joseph's reputation still had not recovered. When he makes the decision to tie his life to Mary and to tie his life to the baby that would become known as Jesus, he makes the decision to suffer his reputation. Which, by the way, is what Jesus ends up doing, making himself of no reputation. Joseph goes through a a whole lot here. But what's really interesting to me is when you look at all of this, you have to think, Maybe God set everything up in this way for a particular reason. Maybe what the Heavenly Father had in mind is that when he entrusted his Holy Son to Joseph, he had in mind that his Son, Jesus Christ, would need to grow up in a family that knew what it was like to live as second-class citizens of the spiritual religious world. Maybe one of the reasons... That Jesus was so compassionate toward women with scandalous stories is because Jesus knew how much his mother appreciated Joseph standing by her, even when she was young and single and pregnant and told by the other villagers, take a hike. Maybe the reason Jesus so commonly felt for the people who were unrespectable and spent time with people who were unrespectable is because his own dad had sacrificed his respectability for his son 
A lot of times we think about Jesus and why would God give Jesus to Mary? Because Mary takes up most of the print when it comes to the parents. And Mary, to be sure, was blessed among women. But I think commonly Jesus would think with fondness toward his dad and admire the courage of his dad to have laid down his life for his son and for Jesus' mom. Years later, when Jesus is a grown-up adult, he'd be teaching people and he would say things like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the old system of righteousness, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not in. And Jesus would be thinking, I think, in the back of his mind, there is a superior form of righteousness, and I've seen it in my dad. I think there was probably a, a very wise plan, this is God after all, with regards to why this family started out so painfully and, and awkwardly and in such a lonely fashion. And I really do believe that when Joseph recognized, if I follow through on what the Lord is telling me, I'll never be called a righteous man again. But Joseph doesn't quite understand the whole picture that his son, Jesus Christ, would grow up and teach all of the human race an entirely new way of righteousness. That Jesus would grow up maybe in the shadow of his dad who'd done these things for him and would redefine righteousness like this. That righteousness is the innocent giving up their life even for the sake of the guilty. That a righteous man in some respects would gain a reputation of unrighteousness so the unrighteous would be given a righteous standing with the Heavenly Father. Jesus would go on and, and teach that a truly holy person is someone who would become unholy, become sin for us so that those of us who are unholy could be deemed as holy. I think somewhere along the line, in the middle of all of this, Joseph came to understand that a real righteous person is not someone who is concerned about self-exaltation and self-preservation. A real righteous person is someone who empties themselves and is even willing to lose their reputation for the sake of people who do not understand the pure righteousness of love. Now we regard Joseph as a righteous man. Why? Because in his righteousness, he protected the mother and he protected the son, and now we know better. I, I started out this morning by talking about this play, The Sign of Jonah. And it's a really interesting play. It doesn't sound like a Christian play at first because it sounds like God's to blame, God's to blame. Well, by the time you get to the end of the story and all these people who've been involved in the Holocaust and killing the Jews and all the rest, they're all blaming God. They pass the buck, pass the buck, pass the buck. And at the end, after they've blamed God, they say, let's sentence God to death. Not only do they say that, they say, let's sentence God to death and, and may he suffer ridicule. And disgrace. Let him become a human being. Let him become a homeless person. Let him wander the earth. Let him experience the, the death of a son. Let him become a Jew and let him, as he dies, experience disgrace and ridicule. Now, we know the rest of the story, don't we? He became a human being. He, he, 
he, he became homeless. He wandered the earth. Jesus says, look, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He became a Jew. Oh, yeah, and he experienced, God experienced the death of his son. And God also experienced in the death of his son ridicule and disgrace. Why? Because our God is a righteous God. What do you mean he's a righteous God? From God's standpoint, true righteousness empties oneself completely and makes oneself of no reputation. When we're thinking about the one who's really at the top, our true God, he did not make rules that he didn't live by. He didn't give us stories that he expected us to live up to. He kept all the rules and he kept true righteousness in a way that you and I never have and never will. And so when we think about what God showed Joseph and when we think about what God showed Jesus through Joseph and when we think about the true nature of righteousness, none of us has any ground to stand on saying we should judge him. He's already stood the judgment for us. There's no beating left to give. So we do not resist. We trust. Because the one at the top is completely and utterly trustworthy. Because he has revealed to us a righteousness that surpasses all of the righteousness. And he's lived in keeping with his righteousness. The one who is at the top can be trusted. And so here's my plea to you. Yield to him. Not simply because he's the authority above all other authorities. But because he is righteous. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the, the Christmas story. And we say thank you for Joseph and thank you for teaching us through Joseph what it is that in some respect or another had to have been communicated to the son who clearly in his teachings and in his life and in his death, burial and resurrection communicated to the rest of the world what true righteousness is. It's not distancing oneself from the sinner. It's emptying oneself for the benefit of even those who do not deserve it. And none of us here do. Lord, you are a righteous God, and may we never stand in judgment over you, especially since you have already been judged for the likes of us, willingly, voluntarily. I pray, too, that we would live in keeping with true righteousness, the kind of righteousness that enters into the suffering and the frailties and the needs of other people. And this we do every Christmas season. May we once again do it wholeheartedly without reservation, but not just for a month, but for the duration of our lives, following the example of Christ and following the example of the dead to whom you gave him. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.